Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, magicandalchemy.com is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kate Ballou, and my co-host, Kristen Lizenby. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kate Ballou. And I'm Kristen Lizenby. I was thinking about today's episode, and I realized that it's sort of like an audio slash podcast version of the Storytime series from the Magic and Alchemy blog, don't you think? Oh my god. (laughs) Yeah, that's actually, that's right. That is right. Um, it was making me laugh the other day because I wrote about Cersei for Magic and Alchemy, um, kind of ahead of us recording the podcast on the Kitchen Witch, and then I thought it was funny that we seem to be tapping into the same sort of collective consciousness. Yeah. Especially after I did a social media post on Tamed Wild about Caridwen and the Cauldron the same day that we recorded. <laughs> This seems to be turning into a natural occurrence lately. I take it as a good sign. Definitely. I'd say that it surprised me, but I think that's pretty hard to do these days. Agreed. I do enjoy catching on to these synchronicities, though. So where are we headed today? The underworld? Yes. Today we're on our way to the home of the Greek god Hades. Or, if you're like us and prefer his more compassionate counterpart, Pluto. But first, let's explore the story of Persephone, the Greek goddess of transformation and queen of the underworld. In the ancient world, there was no winter. Persephone and her mother, Demeter, roamed the land and blessed the earth with a permanent season of harvest. Persephone's beauty rivaled her mother's, and humans and gods alike tempted them with gifts and promises of great love. But a mother and daughter's bond is strong, and they had no desire to separate. Unable to take no for an answer, Hades, god of the underworld, abducted Persephone from a meadow of flowers and forced her underground to rule as his queen. Heartbroken and on the verge of madness, Demeter scoured the land looking for her maiden. It was only when Helios told her what Hades had done, and that their brother, Zeus, had given his approval, that she vowed revenge. When Zeus discovered Demeter's plan to scorch the earth and starve humans, including his devout followers, Hades was forced to release his bride. On her return, mother and daughter rejoiced, but Persephone's time in the world of light was only temporary. In six months, she would return to the underworld. Her eternal punishment, or compromise, depending on your outlook, for consuming six pomegranate seeds during her imprisonment. Demeter still mourns her daughter's absence each year as reflected in nature during the winter months. Persephone's return to her mother, goddess of fertility and agriculture, 
is celebrated in the springtime with flowers, the return of the bees, and seemingly endless sunshine. This is just one version of the story. If you don't already know, there are many. And people are really passionate about their perspective on the Persephone myth, aren't they? Yes, they are. (laughs) And why do you think that is? I've thought about this a lot, actually, and I think that people really resonate with Persephone and her story, or I should say stories, and I personally like that there are so many different variations to this myth, and that we have the freedom to choose and learn from whichever one aligns with our life experience, or what we may be going through in the moment. Definitely. And also, maybe for our listeners, do you know why pomegranate seeds? Yes. From what I understand, Persephone eating the pomegranate seeds, which typically symbolize love, partnership, and fertility, represents sexual consummation. Mm. And I know that in general, in certain ancient mythologies, to eat the fruit of your captor was a way to guarantee that even if you escaped, you would return. So, as I just mentioned, One of the things that I love the most about Persephone's descent into the underworld is that there are so many different interpretations of this tale. Some say that Persephone was abducted. Others insist that she went willingly. Some paint Persephone as a victim and Hades as her controlling abuser. But the ones I prefer are the later retellings, where Persephone, in search of something greater, trades light for dark and in turn, gains a loving partner who supports her every wish. My viewpoint is just one of many, but I see Persephone's descent into Hades' kingdom as a metaphor for what a young adult must leave behind while in pursuit of creative animus. In Persephone's case, she returns to her mother with her own child, which signals that her time underground was a success. She originally left behind her caretaker, the promise of security, and everything familiar, but still survived. And she created something. In this case, it was a child, but that child represents any number of creative endeavors that we bring to fruition. In many ways, Persephone's descent into the underworld symbolizes her death but not in the way that modern society views death. In the book, Mysteries of the Dark Moon, author Demetra George reminds us that darkness symbolizes death, yes, but also rebirth. She says that the descent into the underworld always begins with a death, either the physical death of the body or the psychological death of an aspect of ourselves. Because most of us no longer understand the role of death in cyclical process, and instead have come to believe that it represents a state of absolute finality, we fear our modern initiations of psychological transformation. We resist any kind of change that brings the loss of what we know as security. And, in our resistance to change, which is the very source of renewal, we stagnate and truly die. Simply put, what's old must die before anything new can be born. Whenever we cling to people, things, thoughts, or situations that have outlived their purpose, 
we only prevent ourselves from experiencing the abundance of renewal. I've always been drawn to the Eleusinian mysteries, the secret meetings led by Persephone and Demeter in ancient Athens. And although we'll be saving most of that conversation for a future episode, most scholars agree that these lessons offered initiates an emotional experience where they could dive deep into the unconscious. Like dreams or psychic visions, emotional experiences are often difficult to put into words. So who better to teach them than Demeter and Persephone? Their separation from one another forever changed their outlook on life and death and gave them the unique ability to share these insights with others. Typically, when I speak of Persephone's lover, I rarely call him Hades. I prefer Pluto. Pluto is the Roman counterpart to Hades, but he also appears in the later Greek retellings, specifically those that speak of Persephone's role in the Eleusinian Mysteries. In these versions, he is her partner. He may have taken her from her mother, but in doing so, he offered her a period of separation where, stripped from the expectations of her former life, she could decide for herself who she was meant to be. So yeah, we definitely have to cover the Eleusinian Mysteries later. Absolutely. It's definitely on the calendar for an episode in the near future. And now, to the dark god, Pluto. I was recently encouraged by a friend to tap into my Plutonian energy, as Pluto rules my first house in my birth chart. And she said that it may be helpful to my creative career to explore the tension and creative transformation that Pluto can bring. So when you, Kristen, suggested Persephone for this week's exploration and story, it felt, again, very synchronistic. I definitely had some trepidation heading into my research of Pluto, or, as Kristen mentioned, and some of you may know him as, Hades. I know that you touched on his name a little bit, but to trace it back further, this is kind of a compare and contrast that I found helpful between Pluto and Hades, and it really just affirmed to me how blended these stories have become over time. The major difference between the Greek and the Roman concept of Hades is the name of the deities involved. In the Greek mythology, the god of the underworld was known as Hades. His parents were Cronus and Rhea, brothers Zeus and Poseidon, and his wife Persephone. In Roman mythology, the god of the underworld was known as Pluto, his parents Saturn and Ops, his brothers Neptune and Jupiter, and his wife Proserpina. The Greek Hades was considered harsh and merciless. He was hated by humankind for his fierceness, and anyone offering sacrifices to him had to turn to face away. The Roman Pluto, on the other hand, was regarded as a kind deity. He was worshipped by people, and sacrifices were made to him. He was milder than Hades, and was worshipped as the god of wealth. The Greek Hades was feared by men and deities alike. His name was feared, and could not be uttered in daily life or on any occasion. He was considered a life-hating god. 
Persephone was the one who changed his character to a loving god who restored grains in the depths of the earth. It is said that after this radical change in character, his name was later changed to Pluto, and this is the god who Romans worshipped as the god of the underworld. Pluto's name was not feared as such, because he was a kind god. In Greek mythology, Hades refers to the god of the underworld. The abode of this god was known as the House of Hades and the subterranean region in which souls of the dead reside. In Roman mythology, Pluto, the equivalent of Hades in Greek, referred to the god himself. The Greek concept of Hades acknowledges Hades as the only ruler of the underworld, alongside his queen Persephone, but the Roman mythology of Hades had three different gods of the underworld, Pluto, the god of riches, Dies Pater, I'm not quite sure how to say that, the ruler of the dead, and Orcus, the angel of death, the actual slayer. In the Greek mythology of Hades, Hades fell in love with Persephone and abducted her, taking her to the underworld to make her his queen with the help of Mother Earth, and after scheming with his brother Zeus. In Roman mythology, Pluto had help falling in love after he was struck by one of Cupid's arrows, thereby making him fall in love with Proserpina and arranging with his brother Jupiter to have her abducted to conceal his involvement from Ceres. So, are you following? <laughs> yes. I'm like, how many times can I say Hades in a sentence? <laughs> but um, from this picture that we've painted here, I think I'll probably lean more on the name of Pluto, just because of my own practice, my own birth chart, and also the representation of his kindness. I'm a soft-hearted witch. I can't help it. Same here. I've been scolded before for mentioning Persephone and Pluto together, <laughs> since it probably sounds like I'm unknowingly mixing pantheons. But either way, we can all agree that Persephone and her king rule the underworld. But Pluto is likely the partner we choose to rule alongside of. Definitely. Now, you may have seen the image of Pluto with either a key or a scepter, depending on the depiction. These are his tools to protect the underworld and to keep the souls from escaping. So as I walked myself off into the underworld to see what I could find about Pluto, I kept getting distracted by the underworld itself. There's a mythology about the river Styx, Cerberus, and the souls that inhabit the space that I am so drawn to. So when someone dies, they are led by Hermes to the entrance of the underworld and then carried across the river Acheron. And the Acheron is one of the five rivers that flow through the underworld, one of the others being Styx, which many are pretty familiar with. There's a single ferry run by Charon to take the souls across the river and only those who can pay the fare with coins placed on their lips when they're buried, receive the passage. So if you don't have your fee, you become trapped between the two worlds. The souls then enter through the gates which are guarded by Cerberus. I've always loved Cerberus, and like we talked about with Hecate, I am very attracted to the idea of hellhounds. Cerberus is the three-headed dog of Pluto, sometimes pictured with the tail of a snake, that allows souls to pass by and none to leave, save a few, including Persephone. Once through the gates, the souls appear before a panel of three judges who pass judgment upon them. 
the landscape of the underworld was believed to be divided into different parts. So you had the Gate of Dyes, which means Hades or Hell, the regions of waters, fields of mornings, Tartarus, Land of Joy, Less River, the Gate of Ivory, and the Gate of Sleep. So depending on the sort of life you lived, your judgment would ultimately send you to one of these places. Tartarus was for those who had committed the unforgivable, and this was where Zeus sent the Titans, and those who were heroic would go to the Isle of the Blessed. For the majority, whose deeds put them somewhere in the middle, those that are neither heroic or unspeakably evil, death just reduces them to a shadow of their former selves. So, if you read Homer, he puts them wandering through the Asphodel Meadow, trying to do nothing, and later, Ovid moves these people to the city of Pluto, where they aimlessly try to recreate their former lives. The underworld is different from the dichotomy of heaven and hell, because all of the souls rest between these different pieces of the underworld. After last week's episode, paying attention to how the light fades out of the sky so much more quickly, and heading straight for winter, I've been considering the underworld in a more symbolic way in my own life and work. I'm interested in how, like Persephone, we can acknowledge these cycles in ourselves. How do you think people can work with the energy of the underworld in their own practices? Yeah, I think that it's a little bit like that shadow work that we talked about with Riss. Like, how can we acknowledge the shadowy parts of ourselves, but even a step further towards embracing those sides of ourselves? I'm not so sure how I feel about the god of the underworld, but I do know that beyond the veil is waiting for all of us, right? Without a doubt. (laughs) So sometimes when the nights feel really long, I light a few candles around my apartment and will journal about the night itself and this dark part of the year. So Kristen, you and I talk about napping a lot, but there's (laughs) something about the energy right now that this feels especially powerful. I think that the act of allowing for stillness and silence is so important. It's like in the dead of winter during the snow when you can go outside and you can almost hear it because there's nothing moving. This sort of observation is allowed to us right now and I find it to be essential. Yes, naps are life. (laughs) And that winter wonderland description aligns pretty well with the moments between sleep and awake. Mm -hmm. Magic and stillness and naps all seem to go hand in hand. It's all about exploring the possibilities within those liminal spaces. Yeah, exactly. Um, And I think that there's so much work to be done around that. Like, I think kind of one concrete example that listeners you could try is writing about a lantern or the light that you carry. So this can be like a metaphorical light, like your sense of humor or your perspective on the world, but can also be a concrete light. So does your light look like a lantern, a long tapered candle? Is it a flashlight? How do you carry it? You know, questions like this. That's such an interesting question to ponder, too. And all this talk of light and dark has me thinking about how you said at the beginning that your friend told you to research your Plutonian energy. 
they probably meant it in regards to the planet and not the mythological deity, although I would think there's a decent amount of overlap. But now that you're an expert in Pluto's <laughs> slash Hades slash the underworld, what will you be doing to embrace this Plutonian side of yourself? I know you mentioned shadow work, but can you elaborate? It's funny that you say that because I, I almost, it didn't really occur to me that the two were so separate at all. Like, honestly, when she said Pluto, I was just like immediately thought of the myth and have now realized that maybe I have kind of abandoned the planet <laughs> in that just because as a lover of stories, I feel like I had straight for the narrative that I could look for answers in. But I know that that kind of energy, I guess, feels to me like the break it down and rebuild it again energy. Like another friend described it as snake, scorpion, phoenix as sort of a talisman for this work. Um, and I think that I need to explore more around that. And I also think about the tower card with this sort of transformation. So there's the tower card, but in the original artwork, those falling out of the tower are actually planting seeds on the way down. So kind of thinking about the way to bring that energy into my work as a word witch. But as I unearth it, I will keep you updated. I was just thinking how I haven't pulled the tower card in so long, but next time I do, I'm going to focus on what you just said and plant seeds on my way down because I think that was a beautiful description. But I also think you summed it up perfectly, and it's very similar to the last episode about Hecate. As a goddess who carries the keys to the underworld on her belt, she's very comfortable in the presence of transformation. She sees it all the time as people leave the realm of the living for the spirit world. And if we too can be comfortable with little deaths like rejection or job loss or canceled plans, bruises to the ego, or just releasing the need to be anything other than ourselves, then we're already embracing the Plutonian side of the psyche. I love that so much. Hecate, Persephone, Pluto, and pretty much every other deity that spends time in the underworld is not a fan of stagnancy. So I try to abide by that same thought process. You know, change is good, it's constant, and in many ways it's a form of freedom. And although sometimes it gets uncomfortable, without it, how would we ever grow into the person that we're meant to be? Thank you so much for joining us today, listeners, on Magic and Alchemy, the new podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kate Ballou and Kristen Lizenby. You can find us online at K8Ballou and at Easton Alchemy. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at tamedwild or on the blog magicandalchemy.com. Join us for next week's episode where we talk history and rituals for the upcoming winter solstice. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mode it be for something better. Until next time. <laughs>